2: Hi, this is Colin, we're about to do an episode of Pardon Me, which is a show about impeachment and we thought we should be doing it because we were pretty sure they'd do do something kind of impeachy right around now but it turns out not to be the case it's hard to plan these days but anyway we like doing pardon me we have a lot of fun with it you're going to hear Acu frankie getting some news from the street and wolfie with some factoids and some conversations about incitement in the first amendment and the fashion legacy of the trumps and the fashion future of the biden's and harris's and bernie's mittens all after the news
3: like a broken record same old songs of accusation play like who are you to speak the truth just look at all your failures and mistakes and if they
4: really knew you there's no way they could love you anyway oh but i will find
2: Well, yes, fighting words are, is actually a term that actually does come up in the law, the law of First Amendment. Uh, and that's one of the things we'll be talking about today. Not so much fighting words, but, uh, the, how the First Amendment speaks to the, the, the fundamental charge in, in impeachment number two. Welcome, by the way, to, pardon me, season two, episode two. I'm having a hard time keeping track of all of our iterations here. And, you know, I just have to quickly say before we go to our excellent guests, you know, that friend of yours, like who back, you know, when there wasn't a pandemic was so hard to make plans with. Let's meet. Let's go to the Thai place. OK, you know, maybe I don't feel like Thai. Maybe, maybe we can meet over at the fish place. But 730, right? Well, no, yes. 730 now, it seems kind of early. Maybe we could be, be do it at 830. Actually, today isn't great. We're, it's just getting so complicated. Why don't we not meet? You know, there's that person, right, who's impossible to make plans with. That person who's impossible to make plans with is the United States Congress right now. We (laughs) never have any certainty from moment to moment what is going to happen or, for that matter, whether we should be doing an episode of The Colin McEnroe Show or an episode of Pardon Me, Another Damn Impeachment Show. And from a certain point of view, we made the wrong choice earlier in the week because we thought they were going to be, like, impeaching right now, but they're not. So, But that's okay because there's a lot of really interesting stuff to talk about, and we have sort of a, a way to do that while catching our breath. And that is the way that I'm going to spin it. And there are some pretty fascinating issues here. And just also, as you know, on this show, we're fond of the cultural piece of things. So later on, Vanessa Friedman, who is actually on season one of Pardon Me as well, she is going to talk, she is the fashion critic for the New York Times. She's going to talk about the fashion legacy of the Trumps, and I think Bernie's mittens, and I think, you know, all the really cool coats that went with the outfits on inaugural uh, day. So all that is to come. But right now, we're very excited to have Catherine J. Ross, a professor of law at George Washington University Law School and the author of a forthcoming book on lies and the First Amendment. And she has uh, written about this uh, very subject for Slate, one of our favorite publications. Catherine Ross, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Colin. So
2: we should begin by with, with maybe a sort of a caveat, which is that although the First Amendment law, as adjudicated in courts, can inform the thinking of the senate there's another reality that we know from the prior impeachment which is they can sort of do whatever they want too right they don't they can think about what the law says about the first amendment but they don't really have to do what the law says about the first amendment right they they're free to do other things
1: exactly right and one of the reasons they're so free is that the supreme court has indicated it is not going to interfere with supervise or overrule what the House and the Senate do in impeachment settings.
2: Right. So no less likely a critic of a Republican president than Representative Liz Cheney, Republican from from Wyoming, said to Fox News after January 6th, the president incited the mob. The president addressed the mob. He lit the flame. Well, those sound a little bit like the kind of words that you would want to use if you were going to make the argument that President Trump bore some kind of verbal responsibility for what happened after he spoke to the crowd. But if we were going to think about this in court or in one of your classes, how would we begin thinking about that question, about whether, in fact, he lit the flame? Right.
1: Incitement is has a legal standard that is designed to be very difficult for the government to satisfy and the reason for that is to protect dissidents of every political belief and also to protect people who are exercising their right to assemble and to protest and so the court wanted to draw a pretty bright line between lawful expression of opinions in groups and unlawful incitement to illegal acts and violence. And it did that in a case called Brandenburg, which involved a Klan leader who spoke in an incendiary way at a Klan meeting where people were wearing hoods and some people had weapons and a cross was burned and he was arrested for incitement. But he had not actually asked or directed the crowd to do anything immediate, to take any unlawful action. He just said, in a, in a um, vague way, that if something else happens, if the government continues to try to demolish white supremacy, I'm counterphrasing, then we will take some, what he called, revengeance. Right,
2: revenge. Um,
1: and he also referred to a march that was planned for some time in the future. And they said that's not enough. And they came up with a test that is sometimes misstated, but here's what it actually says. It says that the government can only punish expression in the service of advocacy when it is, and I'm quoting now, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to produce such action. So it really has three parts. It has to be aimed at inciting. The action it's aimed at must be lawless and imminent. And there has to be a good expectation that that action will result.
2: Right. So in the case of Brandenburg, he made it conditional. So already we've got a problem. Uh, you know, if right. this doesn't happen, then then that's going to happen. And there wasn't an imminence. And So in other words, if I say, hey, You five guys, come with me. Let's go burn down Whole Foods. Right. Yeah. And
1: here's the hypo that I use when I'm teaching a law class. Comparing to Brandenburg, I say, you know, what would have happened if he had said, so right after this rally ends, let's go set fire to the house of ex-civil rights leader. Totally different case. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what Donald Trump did on January 6th.
2: Right. So let's hear let's hear a little bit of that uh, to remind people of this is the speech which preceded the march towards the U.S. Capitol.
4: We're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down anyone you want. But I think right here we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. We have come to demand that Congress do the right thing and only count the electors who have been lawfully slated, lawfully slated. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard today. We will see whether Republicans stand strong for integrity of our elections, but whether or not they stand strong for our country, our country. Our country
2: has been under siege for a long time. Okay, so there's a lot of things happening there in that set of remarks, but maybe we can dispense with part three of your example. So if I say, hey, you five guys, come with me and let's go burn down Whole Foods, and they say, actually, we're Quakers, we're on our way to the meeting and stuff like that, then I'm not really talking to anybody who's who's likely to do the thing that I'm talking about. But here, one thing that we can settle, I assume, is that he's talking to people. Well, we know for a fact that he is talking to people who are capable of executing what appear to maybe be his wishes, right?
1: And in fact, what you don't capture on the tape is that through this whole period, the crowd is shouting, fight for Trump. Fight for Trump
2: over and over. Yes, and he's using a lot of fighting uh, language. He says Republicans are constantly fighting like a boxer with his hands tied between his back. It's like a boxer. And we want to be so nice. And you want to be so respectful of everybody, including bad people. And we're going to have to fight much harder. Now, some of the struggle there is going to be that... You know, politics often resorts to metaphorical descriptions that do involve combat and fighting. So so how do we parse that?
1: Well, a couple of ways. Context is very important in every First Amendment case. We look very closely at the facts and we make a lot of distinctions and assessments. And here the context, I think, is quite overwhelming because we have, first of all, what happened immediately after Trump's speech. They, in fact, did march, not all of them, directly to to the Hill, where they trampled over the barriers and committed multiple violent acts, threatened to commit even worse acts. People died. The electoral process for certifying the amendment was disrupted. He gave his speech starting at noon, knowing that the entire Congress would be gathering at one o'clock in order to certify the election results, and the timing could not have been more tightly framed. And one of the things that courts look at in applying the Brandenburg standards is what happened. So very frequently you have an allegation that rhetoric really riled people up, and then the court will say, but nothing happened afterward. So if something had happened, then we would have to really look and figure out whether the speech directed that action. So here we know something happened, and then we have to assess how important that speech was. And there, I would argue, uh, and also while this was all unfolding, Trump, who has a unique power to get his message out because he's the president... And to assert authority, he never said, stop that right now, you misunderstood me. He was in the White House enjoying the scene on television. And even when they finally prevailed on him, when his staff prevailed on him to issue a recorded message, he undercut it by saying, I love you, go home safe. Uh, He didn't say this is just, you know, not okay. So all of that gets weighed. And I would also argue that the court can look backwards. And so first, he knew that these were not an audience of Quakers, because they had been publicly planning what was going to happen in Washington. They talked about disrupting the Capitol. And we can assume, and the state will have to in a criminal trial, likely have to establish that he knew, but we can assume that he knew about these online rumblings because they were quite public and they were covered in the news and his staff probably told him, but also they were responding to his initial invitation when he tweeted, come January 6th and help me fight this attack on my great victory which he knew he was lying and was completely untrue. That isn't part of this analysis, but it's all part of the context.
2: Right, he also Uh, said we'll be wild or something like that.
1: We'll be wild, we'll be wild. And all these people picked up on that and they were online and talking about things like how to get weapons to Washington if you were flying. So that's part of the context as well. And he knew that when he addressed the crowd and he had created that context, at least in part. So I think all of that weighs very heavily toward the notion that his words, while not explicit, were directed toward moving this violence along and likely to have the impact on the crowd he had gathered.
2: Right. You know, uh, I'm glad you brought all that up. I was going to ask you about that because I listened to an interview with Peter Mayer, who's a Republican congressman, new Republican congressman from right. uh, from Michigan. and And in that interview, it was clear to me, although he didn't exactly say it, but it was very clear that what really was the deal breaker for him as a Republican congressman deciding to vote in favor of impeachment was really the second statement. It wasn't the, the statement so much that preceded the riot, the attack, the looting, it was when Trump was given the opportunity to reframe it and say something, as you're suggesting, like, I never meant for this to happen. This is not right. You've got to stop right now. The fact that he didn't do it and he said, I, I love you, you're special, you know, and I was wondering whether a court would consider that. Once again, we're not in court. We're we're in something that resembles a court, but it isn't a court. So it seems almost certain that they will think about the fact that he never really, you know, pulled back from this and never experienced, you know, contrition in the moment. I, I assume that's fair game, certainly in a Senate trial.
1: It is absolutely fair game in the Senate trial, and in a criminal trial, I just want to remind you that it'll be jurors initially deciding yeah. whether or not the state proved its case sufficient to meet the Brandenburg standard beyond a reasonable doubt. And they will certainly take that into account as well. And I I think also when I said that Trump has a unique power, you know, if you or I gave a speech, not that we would, that incited people to violence, and they did something, and then we tried to frantically stop them, they might not listen to us. But these are people who told the press and told the Capitol Police, we're here at the president's invitation. We're doing what he asked us to do. So he's the president. And he then says, no, you misunderstood me. Stop right now. That's going to have quite a sizable impact. And uh, so, yes, I think they'll weigh that. They can also weigh the fact that during that same afternoon, he was frantically trying to reach Senator Tommy Tuberville, a newly elected Republican senator from Alabama, who has has no knowledge of government or the Constitution because he couldn't name the three branches of government when he was campaigning. And Trump called him and said, I want you to assure me that when you guys get back in the chamber, I'm paraphrasing, you're going to help me stop this certification. Right. So he was still working to the underlying goal, mm. even as a siege of the Capitol was going on.
2: Okay, there's something I want to circle back to you before we run out of time. But before I do that, just because of where we are in the conversation, and I don't really know what I expect you to say about this from a point of view of scholarship or, or jur- jurisprudence, but there's also, this is very odd that the indicting authority and then the de facto jury are essentially the victims or prospective victims of the crime. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is something you really wouldn't see anywhere else, right? You have a a jury sitting in judgment of a purported crime that was directed at the jury, which is pretty darn strange, I would assume.
1: (laughs) Yes, it's a highly unusual situation. I'm really glad you brought it up because that cuts two ways, I think. You know, many people would say, well, they don't really need a very lengthy trial because they all know exactly what happened and they know what the harm that was caused consisted of because they were the victims of it. They were in fear for their lives. Uh, But Trump's lawyers might argue they can't really be a fair jury because they're emotionally wrought up from this experience. And, you know, I think we just have to say, well, these senators you know, are taking oaths to do their duty. On the other hand, we know that they may not take that oath very seriously. We had the first impeachment trial of Trump where the Republican senators didn't even want to hear evidence or testimony.
2: I mean, you know, the argument that would be made is, well, this can't possibly be an impartial jury because they were the people who almost got beat up or whatever was going to happen to them. Uh, on the other hand, it's never an impartial jury. It wasn't an impartial jury yes. the last time around. And it, it, every, everything that John Roberts has said is indicated he wouldn't want to rule on a question like that anyway. It's not, I don't think I don't know who else could rule on it. But Roberts is not going to say, well, yeah, you've got a point there. Maybe we just shouldn't do this.
1: Exactly right. And we've got two problems. One is there is no other possible juror because the Constitution is crystal clear. The trial has to be before the Senate, the senators are the jury. And the Supreme Court quite rightly thinks this is a political question. They're not going to go anywhere near it, even beyond the fact that Roberts doesn't want to.
2: So, Catherine Ross, I have to ask you one more question, and then we have to part ways because I'll get in trouble with Betsy Kaplan. So, and that is, you know, when we played that clip earlier, there is this sort of what I take to be kind of a wink-wink moment where he says peacefully and patriotically. And in your article, you make the point, it's not the first time he's done something like that. It's a sort of inoculation, but I'm wondering whether he gets points for it anyway.
1: People will try to give him points. His lawyers will try to give him points. But I think, you know, in the earlier case where he got away with it, he had said one sentence five times and another sentence once about not breaking the law, not being violent. Here, the odds are so imbalanced. It's a very long speech, one sentence from which he pivots immediately to say, the country's been under siege forever. And you just cannot give that statement any weight. And if you did, nobody would ever be convicted again of incitement because everybody would simply throw in a little phrase, don't do anything I wouldn't do, you know, <laughs> that, that wink, wink, don't do anything illegal.
2: All right, Catherine J. Ross, we have to stop there, professor of law at the George Washington University Law School, author of a forthcoming book on the First Amendment. And we are going to throw to, as we always do, and pardon me, a little segment we call Factoids, narrated by Kyone Wolfe.
5: One of the people arrested after the attack on the U.S. Capitol was John Schaefer, guitarist and songwriter for the heavy metal band Iced Earth. Iced Earth's next album will feature songs like Violent Entry and Using Bear Spray on a Cop. No, wait, I'm sorry. Those are just some of the things he's charged with. Joe Biden was sworn in as president at 11.48 on Wednesday. For 12 minutes after that, Trump still had control of the nuclear football. Of course, Trump and the nuclear football were in Florida, where you're only allowed to launch missiles while shirtless and sharing your mess with an alligator. Andrew Johnson was impeached by the House in one day based on a 17-word resolution, not counting the word resolved. The House drafted articles of impeachment later. This was standard practice at the time. Reddit banned the Donald Trump subreddit. Turns out things actually can be banned from Reddit. Several colleges revoked the honorary degrees they gave Donald Trump. Former Liberty University president Jerry Falwell Jr., if he were still running the college, said he would give Trump a third honorary doctorate. Falwell is notoriously fond of things that come in threes. If the president got another honorary degree at a special ceremony, I would like to watch, Falwell did not actually say. Deutsche Bank has decided not to do business with Mr. Trump or his company in the future, according to the New York Times. Deutsche Bank is kind of the Reddit of banking. I'm Kyone Wolf. This has been Factoids.
2: Hi, we're back. We're back to Pardon Me. This is Colin McEnroe and making her return after appearing on Pardon Me in season one, for some reason or other, she actually agreed to come back again. Vanessa Friedman is the fashion director for the New York Times. And I should say that when we booked her, we booked her With a plan to talk about a piece that she wrote called A Farewell to the Trump Aesthetic, which we absolutely will talk about. But since then, all this other fashion stuff has happened. So we have to quickly talk about that too. So let's do the first part first. I think when you read the title A Farewell to the Trump Aesthetic aloud, it is hard not to giggle. But there was a Trump aesthetic, and there's things in which things that you kind of tease apart. Part of this was what, an occasional nod to the idea of, of wearing American designers and American fashion companies, but it was sort of a nod that didn't really amount to any kind of persistent commitment to that idea?
6: Well, I mean, I think when you look back on the four years of kind of Trump style, what you see is, you know, a lot of a reflection of the the sort of administration in general. You know, you see a real uh, focus on theatricality and pageantry and showmanship and also a certain trampling of old norms. And the biggest old norm when it comes to dress for both the president and the first lady is always, you know, wearing an American designer, supporting local business. And while you saw that occasionally with Mr. and Mrs. Trump, it really was more the exception to the rule as opposed to the rule.
2: So Trump was kind of Donnie one note in terms of what he wore. Melania is probably the more interesting person to talk about. You do write quite a bit about her. And there often were things that kind of clanged. That seemed a little tiniered, whether it's a pith helmet in Kenya, which evokes the colonial past or wearing spike heels when she left the White House to go to the ruins of post Hurricane Harvey. Right. I mean, there's sort of ways in which, and, and we'll get to the famous jacket in a second, but there are ways in which it was hard to tell. Is she trolling us with our clo- her clothes? Does she not, or does she just kind of not get how that looks?
6: writer trolling her husband, which I think there was a whole sort of subset of the population who was obsessed with this idea that, you know, it was all commentary on him that was, you know, the part of the free Melania movement. You know, I think in the same way that Donald Trump kept everyone really off center and kind of on edge with his tweeting and his public statements, you know, she did the same thing with her clothes, which frankly was the biggest you know, platform and kind of communication vehicle she had as first lady, since she didn't actually do very much public speaking. And her, you know, her various agendas were relatively low key, even the be best agenda. So, you know, her clothes became really the focus of everyone's attention. And, she did you know, use them sometimes to behave like a classic First Lady when she would wear you know, the, the Ralph Lauren, sort of Jackie Kennedy-esque suit she chose to wear to the swearing-in or a Dior suit to go visit France. And then she would throw in something like the white suit to the State of the Union right after the, the Stormy Daniels scandal when white suits at that point had already become, you know, effectively the uniform of the opposition. And suddenly everyone who was watching would, you know, all the antennas would go up and all the like hackles would start rising and think, oh, my God, she's saying something with this. Right. You never quite knew.
2: You never quite knew. I mean, we could track that back, as you do in your article to uh, the debate that followed the Access Hollywood revelation, where she wore what is apparently standardly referred to as a pink pussy bow shirt. Uh, (laughs) And it seemed kind of on the nose although once again it would be hard to know how to interpret that like this is what i think of your claim i don't care or hey donald i know what you're up to i mean it was impossible to read her that way
6: right or or simply oh that's a pretty bliss. i think i'll put it on <laughs> and you know i think all those different explanations have been offered my general sense is that she is a pretty smart woman. And certainly by the time she got to the White House, it would be impossible for anyone surrounded by any form of advisor who does any kind of reading of their of articles about themselves, not to realize that whatever choices they're making in terms of clothing are going to be analyzed and interpreted. And therefore this, this kind of speculation is on the table. So I think, I think she did know what she was doing.
2: Right. You know, Freud might have said sometimes a blouse is just a blouse. But I think when you're a former fashion model, and I mean, the semiotics of fashion can't possibly escape you in that position. And I'm inclined to think whenever she did something like that, that she meant something. But she always managed it to make it somewhat links like and enigmatic. And that I think would even include the I don't care do you jacket that she wore at the time of the abuses being directed at immigrants at the border. So mm-hmm. remind people of that and, and, and how, how you read it.
6: Honestly, you know, I think someone sent it to me, texted it to me when when she first appeared in that jacket, which was from Zara. It was a kind of Army Navy knockoff jacket um, with this message scrawled on the back. And because the picture was of the back, I thought, uh, oh no. No, like someone's photoshopped her head onto, you know, onto this jacket. This is this is a meme or this is a joke. And then it increasingly became clear that, no, in fact, she actually had chosen that jacket to get onto the helicopter to go to to travel to the border. And it was, you know, it was really astonishing. And equally astonishing was the fact that Stephanie Grisham, who's then her spokesperson, said there is no secret message in this. Because, of course, she was right. There was no secret message. It was it was very Public. It wasn't secret at all. It was there for everyone to read, and then the question became: Okay, who is this for? Beca- you know, is it for her husband, which some people thought it was, or is it for the press, who she found you know deeply annoying? Who who's who is it for? And I think ultimately, according to Stephanie Winston-Wolkoff, who was her friend and is now her uh, tell-all friend, you know, it was it was directed at the public and at the at the media in particular to say sort of leave me alone, but, you know, she was the first lady. It's like when she was in, in Egypt and was posing, you know, in front of the pyramids in her, in a white suit that looked like it was coming straight from Raiders of the Lost Ark. And she said, I wish people would stop paying attention to what I wear and just pay attention to what I do or say. And I thought, well, a your image is part of your job, right? You're representing your husband's, your administration and the country and b. How can you say that while wearing that outfit?
2: Right. So just to sort of leapfrog ahead, I mean, the other difference between these people, uh, I'm talking about the entire Trump family at this point, and anybody else I can think of who's ever been in the White House is they're kind of in the merch business. Well, they're not kind of in the merch business. They're in the merch business. Mm-hmm. So whether it's Ivanka, whether it's Melania, there's a sense in which stuff that happened in the last four years will roll over somehow or other into the marketplace. I mean, how much do we actually know about that?
6: We All we know is that there was certainly groundwork laid in that You know, even after Ivanka, for example, had shuttered her business, separated herself from her line and closed the business, you know, trademarks that she had applied for in China were still approved. So I think 16 different Ivanka Trump trademarks were approved while her father was in office, even after she closed her business. So, you know, something is still possible. You know, Melania Trump, likewise, sued the Daily Mail in 2017 for libel. And part of the argument in her case was that the insinuations that they had published about her actual actions during her modeling career had damaged her image and her image was important because it could be sold. And there were a whole a whole list of products that she could potentially go into attached to that. So clearly from the beginning, there was some thought that this it was an experience that could be parlayed into merch
2: so uh, we have to shift gears here because wednesday brought a whole bunch of new fashion choices and fashion sightings and and it seemed to me i mean i am i i confess a complete imbecile uh, about fashion, but even I could see that there was a semiotics that I couldn't necessarily translate perfectly, but there were things going on there. And if I were to try to characterize it, I would sort of say it's the 180 degree opposite of, I don't care, do you, that there was sort of a way in which, whether we're talking about Jill Biden's outfit, which I guess came from a pretty unknown up and coming small fashion firm to, Mm -hmm. to some of the choices that Kamala Harris made, which I Emphasized black fashion designers. There was a way in which all of the fashions were meant to say, "Oh yeah, we we actually care, and you should yeah. too."
6: Yeah, including including what Joe Biden wore. I mean, I don't think the men get a pass on this one. Mm. You know, I think what they wear matters as much as what the women wear. And you know, and he wore pretty much head to toe Ralph Lauren both days, and you know, and for his swearing in and for the evening. And, you know, Ralph Lauren is the quintessential American designer. I mean, this is a man who literally sponsored the restoration of the Star-Spangled Banner. You can't mm-hmm. find a more American designer. So I think, you know, as you said, this was, this was more than a return to norms. It was an acknowledgement of the expectations that attach to a president and an administration when they come in, in terms of image making. And also, you know, a real effort to take every part of their political platform and support it in whatever way possible. And that includes, you know, they were supporting small businesses, they were supporting black designers, they were supporting female-led firms, you know, and down to the color of of Kamala Harris's swearing in outfit, which was not an accident, I don't think.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of purple all day. And and you spread that out to Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama, things that were sort of purple-ish. They may have been other actual colors, but, but, but I think also the feeling that I got, Vanessa, once again, mm-hmm. I'm a fashion moron, was there was also sort of a united colors of Benetton thing going on. And you could throw in Amanda Gorman and that sort of mustard yellow coat that she had. And then the, the red part of her, what was kind of on her head, <laughs> it was a scarf or something. You see, I told you. Right, headband. Headband. <laughs> headband. Okay. You know, I mean, there's sort of, you know, I just, and, and, and Jill Biden's, you know, pretty vivid and unusual hue of blue. You, there was sort of a way in which they were kind of seeing another thing, too, which I, th- I thought, like a lot of colors coming together.
6: Well, it was. I mean, it was particularly striking given Melania Trump left the White House in an all black outfit, mm-hmm. um, which made for quite a contrast. I, I do think that the purple was significant. And I think, you know, Jill Biden herself wore a, um, a coat and dress on Tuesday night at the COVID memorial that was also purple and that was actually called the unity coat, is by, again, a young, a small New York designer called Jonathan Cohen. And, you know, purple is the combination of red and blue. The theme of the inauguration was America United. I mean, again, just like the level of consideration of detail in messaging was really, I think, consistent and striking.
2: So we would just be talking so much more about that, except that... Bernie had those mittens on
6: <laughs> and he was the viral he was the viral fashion moment.
2: So he there he is he's sitting there and there were so many very funny memes Stuff like the pictures of him sitting there with his arms crossed and his big, huge gloves saying, you know, I got a really good seat for Tanglewood and I'm just staying here, you know, until the season starts or whatever. It's just stuff like that. But the the mittens were, well, they had a story, right? They were from Vermont and they were just like the most politically correct mittens that ever were.
6: Yeah, they've been knitted by a school teacher for him, I think given two years ago. And the um, the lining was made from recycled plastic bottles. But, you know, I think the thing that also made it work is it was just so Bernie, you know they did for him what fashion is supposed to do, which is convey exactly who you are and what you're about. And along with the the jacket, the Burton jacket, you know they they really did that.
2: It was on brand.
6: It was very on brand.
2: So I'm going to ask you one last question too, which is, sir, you know, so one thing that you took note of is that the Bidens also kind of coordinated a little bit his mm-hmm. uh, tie, or his necktie, kind of picked up her blue and. So just to circle back to the Trumps, and I had not noticed this in all of the chaos until I read one of your pieces about it, but their Christmas card, they were like both in tuxedos. Although when you look at it, it really does look like at minimum Trump's head is photoshopped onto the body <laughs> and maybe hers as well. And so we're sort of back to that cryptic thing. Is that, right. is that a moment like saying, well, yeah, but ultimately we were John and Yoko and you guys didn't get it. But here we are in our matching tuxedos.
6: You know, I think we're going to have to wait and see. Popularly, there was a lot of buzz around their appearance when they landed in Mar-a-Lago. You know, Mwani had changed. was wearing a kind of Gucci caftan Mm -hmm. and flats and looked very relaxed and happy. And after they walked off the plane, the then former president waved at some people and she just kept going out of the frame. Mm -hmm. So I think, again, you know, this this soap opera is going to keep on playing.
2: No, it, it definitely is. Well, I mean, they... They like for us to talk about them, so we're just mm-hmm. obliging them. We're playing right into their hands. Nonetheless, it has been a swell and fun to talk to you as usual. Vanessa Friedman is the fashion director for The New York Times. Thanks for sharing your time with us.
6: Nice to speak to you.
2: All right. We're going to take a little break here. i got some thank yous to do. We've got Accu Frankie coming up. So much more on Pardon Me. Like it's a
6: cat.
2: All right, time to thank my team. I love my team. It starts with Kat Pastor there in the studio. She's the technical producer. The senior producer is Betsy Kaplan, and uh, Jonathan McNichol is the mastermind behind a lot of the production elements that go into Pardon Me. Plus, she, he's like turning into this weird, almost Talmudic scholar of impeachment. So anyway, thanks to all, all of them, would be impossible to, to do without them. I don't even know when we're gonna do the next Pardon Me. I think we're like not doing one next week, but don't, don't hold me to that. All right, so meanwhile, we sent Frankie Graziano, otherwise known as Acu Frankie out into the world on Wednesday morning, inauguration day. We want you to know that he took lots of safety precautions. There was even some kind of pole that was used to impose distancing. He wanted everybody to put on masks before they talked to him. He even had to really kind of urge one of the people to put the mask on. So here in a function that he has played in the past in season one of Pardon Me, is Acu Frankie in a series of parking lots and other weird places.
4: Apparently Democrats only impeach people in the winter, so I'm out here freezing my Steven Mnuchins off in Enfield. Here we go from the shops at Enfield Commons. Excuse me ma'am, can I trouble you for a second? I'm trying to ask a couple of people some questions about not a one but a second impeachment. So the biggest question that I guess that we have for people is, now that Donald Trump's out of office, is impeachment something you care about?
3: Yeah, definitely. I'd rather he couldn't run for
1: office again, but it, but uppermost is that I would love it if he could be held accountable for everything that he's done in office.
4: I don't care one way or the other on any of it. <laughs> the whole thing's a joke in Washington. I don't even care about any of it. What about you? Don't care anymore. He's out.
3: On impeachment, I think it was so Trump can't run for office in 2024. I think that was the agenda of the... Um, Democrats, and I do think that Trump will come back, maybe not even as our president, but as a, um, as just a member of society, and I think he's still going to expose the deep state that's now in office. I think he shouldn't get back in, and that's
0: why I
4: I agree with it. You want him to be convicted because you don't want him to come back. That's the major concern.
0: Yes, it is. It is. Because I thought that the president that we had was not for everybody. For a person of color, I thought he had more racist views than I could deal with. I feel like we were going down the wrong path. And to tell you the truth, I've, just because of that, I've lost some um, Caucasian friends that, you know, because we had a, a difference. And I feel that race should be talked about. It's sensitive, but we can agree to disagree and not be disagreeable.
4: Now they're bringing it up, everybody's racist because you're white, you're racist. I don't care for it. I'm not racist. Nobody's racist. They impeach Clinton and every, he's still everybody's hero. So what? that doesn't really mean anything, you know? So
3: I don't think he should face conviction solely based on the crime. You have to look at the crime that was committed. Allegedly, it was high crimes and misdemeanors. And if you look at the statute of the law, he was not in violation with the law. He did not promote any violence, he didn't call for violence, he actually called for peace. And I don't believe that when Congress got stampled, I don't believe those were Trump supporters. I believe it was Antifa or people set in when he's done nothing but great things such as the highest black home ownership. He was the greatest president we ever had.
4: It all depends on what you're talking about. I think he did some good things, but he's an idiot. <laughs> okay, he personally he's an idiot. He does he, he says stupid. Shit. He can't talk to people properly. He's a terrible talker, and he's, he says dumbass stuff.
0: Some things Trump did were fair. I'm just hoping that we can we don't have a civil war. I'm hoping that we can get back to some kind of you know like in the store. You know, I dropped something, somebody picked it up of color just to unite i mean we're all people we all bleed the same
2: i think it should go forward yes i don't want it to interfere with what the um, biden administration has to do but i i do think that it will help the country to you know there there are a lot of people out there who uh they don't believe in the, that the election was fair and it was do you still
4: have faith in our democracy oh definitely yes no none none whatsoever
3: i love america there's no place like america but honestly i i have faith that in 2024 and when we have a fair process like the constitution states how elections should be done i i will then regain my faith in the process but with this process i kind of lost faith in the system altogether just with the outcome of what happened
2: But, uh, you know, that faith needs to be restored. And I'd like to see, uh, what I'd like to see is there where they can say to people who don't believe that the last election was fair, you know, just be totally transparent. Say, look, here's the ballots, go do your own spot checks. And then you can believe in it again if that's what you need to do. If you need to do your own homework, you know, try and make it possible for them to do that.
4: I guess I have to ask you, do you still have faith in our democratic institution?
2: I do.
0: I do. that? I don't know, I I still feel like there's good people, and I feel like everybody's, people generally want to just be fair. You know, I just, I believe in mankind. I do. All
2: right, that shopping cart you hear at the end, its name was Earl, Uh, but everybody else's names are Frankie Graziano, the great Frankie Graziano, out at the Enfield Commons Shopping Center, where he talked to Jill Liddell, Stephen Fowler, Howie Benner, Mike and Joe, yeah, from the mike and joe landscaping podcast i love that show i didn't know you talked to mike and joe uh adrena womack from south windsor and Allie mcgowan and so i've got a couple of minutes left keep track of me now cat but so i want to just quickly say that we don't really exactly know when we 're going to do, pardon me again, and we I mean, I think we will do it again, but this picture kind of keeps changing, and we think we know what 's going to happen on Monday, but maybe we don't but one thing that I, I do appreciate is the the amount of support that people have given to this show it is it is us trying to do a very different thing, and you just yeah apropos of what Frankie just collected there too, you can see. America or at least the Enfield Commons shopping center is, you know, somewhat divided about how to proceed from here and what to do. But I do think that this matters. How this gets handled matters. Yes, the Constitution says that impeachment is essentially a process for removing somebody from office. But as we discussed last week, it it has been used in other ways. And I, I do think that impeachment is also intended to be a process by which Congress takes note of somebody who has abused his office, has committed an offense which could only be committed as part and parcel of being in a particular office, that that was very much sort of part of what went on here, that that ultimately President Trump abused his office. He committed a crime that you could only commit by being president and then doing a certain thing. And the only real way to respond to that is through impeachment. There may be criminal proceedings for all kinds of other stuff in the future, but impeachment is at least appropriate to do here. So it'll also be just kind of interesting to see how the newly constituted Senate handles all this. So we'll be back with more Pardon Me's. We just don't know when or where, which is not good branding, planning, and stuff like that, but that's kind of who we are. Thank you so much for listening, and we're going to end with Frank Sinatra in a pensive mood.
0: From the brim to the dregs, it poured sweet and clear, it was a very good year.